Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. As always, thanks for listening and tuning in. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do so through iTunes. You can also leave a review there. It would mean so much. So thank you very much. And on today's episode, let me just say, it's awesome. You're going to get such great material on the shoulder. It is crazy. So my guest is Joe Gibson. And she is a clinical physiotherapy specialist working at the Liverpool Upper Limb Unit at the Royal Liverpool Hospital and a consultant in private practice. She has worked as a shoulder specialist since 1995 and lectures nationally and internationally about assessment and rehabilitation of the shoulder complex. She has co-developed master's modules with Liverpool University for the diagnosis and treatment of upper limb pathology and has co-authored national guidelines for the management of different shoulder pathologies. She has presented original research at many national and international conferences, published in peer-reviewed journals, and written several book chapters. In addition, she is an associate editor of the British Shoulder and Elbow Journal. So what do we talk... Sorry for the sirens going off behind me. So in this episode, it's so good. I learned so much just from talking with her for an hour. Um, And I really, I cannot wait to take a course with her in person. I mean, it would be really, really wonderful. So in this episode, we discuss using patient history to classify shoulder pathology, factors to consider when deciding whether to treat with surgery or rehabilitation, the nervous system's role in shoulder instability, how to use language and metaphors to develop buy-in, and Joe's takeaways from the British Elbow and Shoulder Society Conference, which, which was a couple of weeks ago. And I have to say, this is one of the the best quotes from Joe from this podcast was, the biggest investment of my time is hearing how everything started and what the story has been from there. So it's all about prioritizing learning the patient's history during the initial evaluation, because that serves as your roadmap for treatment. You know, like Joe says, the history tells me far more than any clinical test. And that is so true with shoulder pathology, with any pathology. And we talk a lot about that during this podcast. So get your pen and paper ready. If you're in the car and you're listening to this, you're going to want to listen to it again because you're going to want to write a lot of stuff down. And if you're not following her on Twitter, I highly suggest you do that. Everything you can find where to find her on Twitter, uh, the British Elbow and Shoulder Society, the hashtag BESS2017, um, everything that we talk about is over at the show notes at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. So if you go over to there 
and you click on, you'll get the links for everything. The Stanmore classification we talk about, the sham surgery versus label repair, the randomized control clinical trial, the Derby Shoulder, Jane Moser Research, Noi Group apps, Noi Group website, everything we talk about is one click away. So be sure to head over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, go to the show notes for this episode with Joe Gibson, click on all the links because you're going to learn a lot from everything. Um, And without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful episode with physiotherapist Joe Gibson. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the podcast. I'm honored to have you on. Thanks so much. Well, Karen, it's all my honor. It's a real pleasure to be asked. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I know we've been trying to make this work for for uh, back back and forth for some time now, so I'm pretty psyched because we're going to be talking in today's podcast about shoulder instability, which is something near and dear to my heart and my right shoulder. So let's we'll just sort of jump right in. So when you get a patient that comes to you and their diagnosis is shoulder instability, obviously that's a wide that's casting a wide net. So what do you do? Can you take us through your evaluative procedure and how you kind of make that, uh, that differential diagnosis that goes beyond just instability? Absolutely. So kind of, I guess the most important thing for me is hearing the patient history and hearing the patient's story. Um, I work in a tertiary referral unit, so we often see a lot of people that have failed previous physio. And actually the biggest investment of my time is hearing how everything started and and what the story's been from there. Because I guess key to my decision making is ascertaining whether there may be a structural component to that instability or whether it's truly atraumatic. And kind of in my head, I have a framework. So um, we we tend to use what we call the Stanmore Triangle in our unit, which kind of divides instability into three different groups. Um, So type one would be um, very much kind of, I guess what um, the, the Americans would recognize as the Tubbs group. So the traumatic unidirectional instability, who's usually had trauma resulting in some sort of label pathology and that that's kind of one group the structural group and slap lesions any kind of traumatic injury would come within that group then I guess what was traditionally referred to as the ambry group so the multi-directionals so those that have got a background of laxity in the capsule but no key history of trauma um, where basically the cuff isn't doing its job well enough and usually they have proprioceptive deficits and maybe balance and postural issues too. So those are two groups that have kind of been well represented in the literature but what the Stanmore Triangle does is recognize a third group and, and this third group are what we have kind of loosely called the muscle patterners but really what we see is there is no clear structural element to their problem, there is definitely no history of trauma um, but Essentially, the issue is that the the big muscles around the shoulder joint work so hard to the extent that they actually result in kind of subluxation or dislocation of the joints. Now, in reality, whereas initially we very much tried to polarize those three groups, what we find is actually there's often an overlap. So you can have a patient with laxity who actually has muscle patterning. Equally, you might have somebody who'd had a traumatic instability um, where for very many reasons, may have then developed muscle patterning as well. And we talk about muscle patterning, really, it's just an exaggeration of the compensatory patterns we see in shoulder pathology. But the difference with this group is it results in subluxation or dislocation. 
so I guess for me in my head, I've got those three groups there and, and the history will guide me. Um, if there is a history of trauma, it's kind of trying to ascertain how significant that is. Um, and I think sometimes we can be guilty of making assumptions. So you get somebody who looks hypermobile and lax, but then you hear that they had an injury that actually for them was probably significant enough to create some kind of structural pathology. But then equally, we have to be very aware that there's probably only a very small group of patients, even in that traumatic group, that I'm thinking is surgery an option. You know, when I go into my clinical exam, is that going to guide me towards a, a surgical intervention? And I think really in terms of where the evidence stands at the moment, there's a very small group that genuinely there is good evidence to support early intervention. And that's kind of your under 25 sporting individual or somebody with high demands who's had a very clear history of dislocation that required relocation in the A&E or the emergency department. Um, that history I'm very happy with if they present and they're apprehensive in the clinic um, and they have a high expectation of surgery and, and they want to get back to sport quickly. I think the evidence supports, certainly the Cochrane collaboration supports, that there is good evidence to support early intervention in that group. However, that means everybody outside that group kind of rehab should be your, your first attempt. And I think the dilemma we have is when you look at sports like um, rugby and goalkeepers in football there's a very high well and you guys with baseball there's mm -hmm. a high prevalence of athletes with label pathology that continue to perform at top level so for me that traumatic history is absolutely key in my decision making and so when if someone comes in and they say to you you know I yes I dislocated my shoulder it needed relocation uh, in a emergency department uh, by a physician um, are you thinking right away this person should be referred to a surgeon or, you know, let's say they're early 30s but still want to be very active, you know, in maybe not professional sports but certainly recreational sports? Where, where does that person lie on that continuum? Because I'm sure there's some gray areas there. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think the only group we can really be definitive about in terms of the evidence is that under 25 group. I think everybody else, the evidence supports some physiotherapy intervention first. That, you know, the worst case scenario is it doesn't get them better, but it optimizes their muscle control and makes their post-op rehab much easier. But the best case scenario is it gets them better and they don't need surgery. So, you know, there's, again, a couple of papers that have come out, one about sham surgery and slap repairs um, and certainly you know there's been a comparison of um, conservative management and surgical management in that slightly older population and there's no doubt that there's a big correlation with patient expectations um, the level of activity that they want to get back to however they do seem to have more potential to get better once they get outside that 25 age group and of course you're right I mean I always laugh with the evidence you know if you're over 40 it's your cuff if you're under 40 it's instability the reality is if you're 40 what is it <laughs> you right. know all these all these things are very nebulous guidelines but for me the key I, I guess I work in a unit where we see a lot of young sports people and we have a fairly low tolerance if they're under 25 wanting to get back to elite sport we will do a repair um, because we're getting people back very, very quickly. However, anybody outside that, or particularly if they don't have high demands, will look at rehab first. And I think mm -hmm. it's really important because I think, you know, perhaps – 
I think it's tempting to go for surgery. I think we used to think that if we didn't, people got arthritic changes. I'm not sure the evidence supports that now. However, in that young group, I think it, it's a considered benefit to do it early. Got it. Um, so I've kind of gone off subject. Sorry. But, but that's my, in my head, that is my absolute consideration. Yeah. Okay. So let's say you have someone comes in, they, have, they don't have trauma. Um, yeah. let's say they're in that, that sort of second part of that triangle, that multi-directional, uh, no key trauma person. What are you, what are you, take us through your thought process with that person? Obviously with everyone, you're getting their history and their story. Yeah. So, so the bottom line is in, in the majority of those patients, what we, I have quite a warped idea about this group because I tend to only see the people that have failed. However, if you look sensibly at this group, the bottom line is the evidence I think supports that your kind of posterior cuff and your posterior deltoid kind of, they, they might do their job, but they don't do it in the right way at the right time. And I genuinely believe the evidence supports that. It also supports proprioceptive deficits and it also supports some delay in some of your feed forward, get ready for action reflexes. So there is no doubt um, there's a program called the Derby Instability Program. Um, Lynn Watson from Australia done some great work but generally if you work the cuff if you do some dynamic work for the kinetic chain and you make everything very proprioceptive 80% of that patient cohort do very well with appropriate rehab um, and so my first approach having heard the patient's story we can perhaps go back to some of the subjective things that would flagged me that this wasn't quite so simple but in the majority of patients who've had a change in activity or they've started a new sport or had some really nebulous thing that's resulted in that initial dislocation really what I'm interested in is do they have a background of generalized hypermobility um, have they got excessive laxity at the shoulder and obviously I just ascertained that with very simple range of movement have they got excessive external rotation in neutral and 90 degrees and then I'll go through a a full kind of Baton and Brighton criteria in terms of their hypermobility. Um, but then really what I'm interested in is observing their movement pattern and seeing if I can change their instability. So if they can demonstrate um, their subluxation or dislocation, then I literally will do some very simple things. I guess we'd call them improvement tests or symptom modification to see if we can change that. Now, there's clearly a lot of controversy about those symptom modification procedures in the literature at the moment and whether we do a bad thing by showing patients we have to change pain. In this cohort with instability, I think it's very empowering for the patient because it shows them if they make their muscles work differently, they're stable. And so often it's no more complicated than just getting them to bend their arm. We know with this patient group, they have very gross motor strategies. They lose their proprioception. And often just by getting them to bend the elbow and make a fist, potentially to reinforce that feed forward but just remove the load on the shoulder often that will result in improvements in stability if it doesn't then the next thing I would do is just give them a little bit of resistance to work through with exactly the same kind of uh, maneuver and whether that's proprioceptive whether it reinforces the posterior cuff whether it just changes their movement experience I probably can't tell you but I base it on what I understand about the muscles are doing and again if that changes their instability one it's very positive but it also tells me where I'll start with my exercises 
Um, the, the bottom line is the next part of my assessment is just looking at the rest of the body. So I'll do a very simple screen looking at one leg stand at their balance and whether they have a Trendelenburg. But then I will look at that improvement test, adding in a step or a step up to see what gives them the best relief of their symptoms. And that basically will then inform me in terms of my first exercise to help change their muscle timing and change their movement experience. When I've done those things, then then what I'm interested in, in that kind of straightforward group where it's easy to change is just looking at the ability of the cuff to do its job in isolation. And, and that simply involves lying the patient down, supporting the weight of the arm and seeing if they can actively rotate their arm through their full passive range. And if they can do it with the arm supported, can they do it with the arm unsupported? And commonly they can't. And commonly even in the supported position, they cannot um control rotation through their full passive range now that kind of that doesn't tell me if it's a strength issue or a timing issue but it gives me a very useful objective measure so that within with my other more dynamic facilitation type rehab i've got something i can objectively retest to make sure that muscle system is doing its job and to be quite honest with the majority of that kind of 80 percent that we do well with rehab my assessment isn't any more complicated than that because it doesn't need to be. The key is just establishing the patient's belief and understanding and making sure they have the tools to get better. But those very simple improvement procedures I find very useful because they immediately give me somewhere to start with the patient in terms of their exercise prescription. Um, but equally, if I can't change it, then that might take me down another path. Yeah, and I, it's interesting you should say that's kind of that's all I need to do in my assessment. Because as you were going through that, I'm thinking to myself, this is simple. It is. It's simple. It's simple. It's direct. And, but it gives you the information that you need. But that's the first thing that went in. It's like, yes, this is simple. Yeah. But, you know, I think that's I've, – I've done this for a really long time, Karen. <laughs> I've specialized in shoulders since 1995. And I kind of look back on what I used to teach people and I think, oh, my Lord, I made it so complicated. But I kind of based it on the evidence was there. But I, I guess the things I do haven't perhaps changed a lot, but my understanding or my justification is, is probably clearer in my head. And the bottom line is the muscles just need – a kind of bit of proprioceptive input to work better and differently and if we look at motor learning if we make it a little bit quicker and a little bit more proprioceptive it makes it a whole lot easier for the patient and so why we can look at the evidence and think oh my goodness why do all these very different things work the common theme is they target the shoulder they're proprioceptive and they involve movement and, and that's where things go appear to go wrong in the majority of this instability population mm -hmm. And what about all those, the special tests that, oh, that you know, <laughs> the, the special tests that maybe aren't quite so special? Um, where, where are all your special tests in this? Where, when are you doing all your special t shoulder tests? So if I have, uh, so great question, and as you say, very controversial just at the moment in terms of reliability, et cetera. In, in that trauma, I think the, the key thing, again, in terms of this kind of rhetoric that's very anti-special tests, we need to be a little bit careful because in that traumatic, traumatic population and when we're searching things out, 
combined with the history and the symptomology, I still think they have a place. And often the test, often the papers that look at special tests don't look at these things in combination. Into you know, and the patient age, their mechanism of injury, how they present, etc. I think all those things are massively important. And certainly the evidence supports their seventy percent of your decision making. So if I have somebody with that traumatic history, whether I be suspecting an anterior label tear, a posterior label tear, or a slap lesion, clearly their mechanism will direct me as to which of those I might be querying. The reality is in those cases, I think perhaps there is merit in special testing, particularly in that very young group going back to high demand. Um, in the atraumatic group, it's a really good question. You know, laxity testing when it's used to help def, um, define uh, types of instability has been shown to be very poor in terms of intertester reliability. And certainly the sulcus test probably has limited clinical usage. Your, just your external rotation range probably tells you as much if it's beyond 90 degrees. Um, in terms of laxity testing, you kind of already know that from your external rotation testing. It doesn't tell you anything more. Um, and somebody who truly has no history of trauma but is apprehensive, again, it kind of maybe tells you more about their fear and their beliefs than it does about anything structural. So I, I guess my caveat is always the history tells me far more than any clinical test. But in the traumatic group, you know, apprehension actually as special tests go in a young cohort with a true history of dislocation actually has very high sensitivity and specificity. But it's probably the only instability special test that does. Um, there's a test called the GAGI test, which is the hyperabduction test, which again has perhaps been misinterpreted in, in that atraumatic group. But again, it's a way of ascertaining if there is injury to that inferior complex. So I think, you know, my default position is always the history and, and what the patient tells me. Yeah, which which makes a lot of sense. And I because I remember, you know, obviously learning all of these tests and the apprehension test uh, back in my school days. And kind of like you said, it, that probably shows more about their fear or their beliefs around what they think is happening with their shoulder, which you can ascertain in their history by asking the simple question of well, what do you think is going on? Absolutely. And I think, as I say, the only caveat to that is that young traumatic group mm -hmm. that have had a definite, it came out forwards, it had to be put back in. You know, a lot of research would show if they're under 25 they've actually got a bank heart lesion until proven otherwise you almost mm -hmm. don't need to do an apprehension mm -hmm. test and then there was a whole lot of evidence as to how to make your apprehension test more sensitive the bottom line is did they have a traumatic dislocation that needed relocating or not and, and I think you're absolutely right I think unless they have that it kind of just tells you that they don't like being there mm -hmm. yeah Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's well put. Um, so let's start now. So we talked about that sort of traumatic group, that multidirectional, certainly atraumatic, and then that third sort of part of that triangle, that sort of, there's that, that muscle patterning, perhaps that a lot of uh, um, proprioceptive disruption, I guess you could say. So I feel like this third group um, can be a little bit trickier. It's not as straightforward, obviously, as a traumatic injury. That's a little more straightforward. But uh, now, is this third group the group that you tend to see a lot? Like you said, you're seeing people who failed elsewhere. Yeah, so I, I think it, it's important to kind of, I, I guess when Stanmore and, and Ian Bailey and the team that have kind of written this up since, one of my very good friends, Andrew Jaggi, I think the, the reality is, 
it's become very clear that there's a big overlap between these groups and the kind of type two, three group, there is a lot of overlap. There are kind of key things in the subjective history that kind of are a common feature of people that are more complex. So a good example in this group would be somebody who doesn't have a significant trauma, but their shoulder dislocates. So maybe they were walking the dog and it was a little dog, not a big dog. <laughs> um, and it, it tugged on the lead or, or some, or somebody knocked them in the playground. You know, there was no real trauma involved and yet they go to A&E to have their shoulder relocated. They have the shoulder relocated, but as soon as they wake up from their GA or the, um, the sedation wears off their shoulder dislocates again that kind of picture immediately rings alarm bells so that you know essentially that muscle system is so switched on that it can't be switched off so immediately that kind of moves them into that more complex group there's no doubt belief so you know people present with these kind of wonky weird shoulders and people go oh my god I've never seen that before so or they go down the surgical route and it fails when they didn't really need surgery or all sorts of language stuff and so that they have poor beliefs the people around them think something has to be done um so that's a very important consideration we have patients who come where the shoulder is con permanently persistently dislocated it never goes back into joint so there are there are kind of some things that may point to us and certainly for me it's when they you know, I have some amazing colleagues around where I work. So when I get patients that I know have been treated by them, immediately I'm knowing that just an improvement test and a bit of posture and dynamic stuff probably isn't going to work. So again, there are things in the subjective. Um, often, again, these are people that are disengaging from social activity. A little bit, I, I, I love Peter Sullivan's podcast, but, you know, very much like some of the population that he talks about, you know, very fear-driven. This is just the manifest is in their muscle activity rather than in pain, but equally it can be both. And so all those things in their history start to make me think this is not straightforward. But in terms of how they present, um, in terms of an add-on, I guess, to what I was telling you about my assessment, just doing a simple elbow flexion and palpating their pecs and lats, those muscles shouldn't be working when they bend their elbow, and commonly they are. And these people often will dislocate as soon as they lift their arm up. It's not something that happens in range. So I kind of, sorry, I've blathered on there and given you a lot of information, but I, but I think I would definitely say if you get somebody who's going to A&E who's getting relocated and coming straight straight out of joint. To me, that's muscle patterning until proven otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, somebody who's got very negative beliefs, lots of pain, joints out all the time. It, it's interesting, actually, because a group of us have been meeting over the last couple of years. It was a project started by a lady called Jane Moser, trying to understand those of us that were treating these patients, what were the features that we considered complex and no great surprise, it comes back to beliefs and disengagement and um, lack of engagement or understanding, you know, psycho back background psychosocial stuff. But what's fascinating with this group, it manifests in the abnormal muscle activity. Mm. And I have a question about this group. So, you know, you have these, this group of patients who are very fearful, they're obviously fearful of movement. Are these people who are then can be subject to I don't want to say like uh, adhesive capsulitis, not not necessarily adhesive capsulitis, but you know, a, a just complete lack of range of motion as well. Because if they're afraid to move, or these people who are afraid to move because they don't want to dislocate the shoulder, so they have an instability. But then on top of that, they have very little range of motion just because of their fear of movement. Can that happen? 
Absolutely. So I, I think one key thing for me to say initially is all the stuff I said about assessment before I would still do with this group initially, because sometimes that's all it takes. You just need to remind the muscle or give them some proprioceptive input that changes how things work. So all the things I talked about in the type two group, I would go to first. It's when those when I can't change it, this is what's going through my head and I'll have had the clues in the subjective. There is absolutely no doubt we get patients who will not lift their arm away from their side and they almost retreat when you walk towards them passively if you looked at them under EUA they will have full range of movement it is purely a protective strategy that stops them moving but in those groups what's been fascinating over the years that I you know I I guess I'm very bad at giving up on things if I don't understand and kind of always looking for solutions and trying to understand why and and there's a couple of things that we found with with this group that we find very useful in assessment so kind of shall I tell you about that a little bit yeah sure so, so, so essentially my journey in rehab has been stealing things from lots of other specialties and applying it in the shoulder and seeing if it works. So I went to a, um, a conference on complex regional pain syndrome many, many years ago and, and was fascinated about, you know, the brain stuff and changes in cortical representation. And there seemed to be a lot of parallels with some of my patients one in terms of their pain description, um, but also some of them got some really weird symptoms in that you'd get this spontaneous bruising that kind of came and went in a 20-minute session, which again was quite consistent with that CRPS cohort. And so what we started started looking at was things like two-point discrimination and left-right judgment um, that are familiar, you know, in kind of persistent pain. And fascinatingly, we found in a subgroup of patients that their measurements were way off the scale. So particularly in the group that were out all the time or had pain as a major feature. And so essentially, whereas in, in a normal population around the scapula, your two-point discrimination is around four and a half centimetres, we kind of found that it was seven and a half, eight centimetres before they could distinguish two points and I, I think the evidence supports that correlates well with cortical reorganization and then the other thing was with the left right judgment they were kind of only getting accurate 45 percent of the time but also their rate of um, interpretation was much slower than an age match population so we, we looked at an age match population and, and, and it was really clear that difference now what's been wonderful subsequently is one of my colleagues has done some fMRI looking at a, a group that have failed with this persistently out of shoulder and found that those clinical tools correlate very highly with what they found on fMRI and essentially it was that there was this change in organization but also some of their movement processing kind of moved into the more emotional centers of their brain so for me as a clinician it's brilliant because if I have that complex group in front of me immediately I can do two very simple tests that they don't even need to move their arm which will tell me okay well this is where I need to start I need to retrain that brain and get that cortical map back to normal so that that's very powerful the, the other thing that we found and and this is one of the things that came up at a conference I was at last week um, one of the things we started measuring a long time ago, again, because of observations I'd made at a neurological conference, um, was the significance of a, a neurodevelopmental element. So a guy called Wayne Org, an American author, did some work back in 2000 showing that in a subgroup of these these kind of in, atraumatic instability group, some of their very kind of primal reflexes remain very dominant. And it's kind of, whoa, what's that mean? But essentially what it means is they don't develop selective control. So we did very simple tests like angels in the snow 
um, which is a well-known pediatric. So you lie in the snow and do all sorts of, yeah, exactly. You wave your arms and your legs around, but actually there's a sequence that you test that in. So you do isolate, you literally lie them on the floor and say individual arms, individual legs, and then both uh, arms together, both legs together, and then ipsilateral arm and leg, and then contralateral arm and leg. And it's fascinating when you get to the combined arm and leg movements often you'll see a real hesitation they have to make a fist they have to look at the hand they, they really can't work out how to dissociate it and this correlates often with a delay in developmental milestones or they'll be very well compensated kind of dyslexics or dyspraxics so the, the one of the papers that was presented last week actually showed there was an association with not crawling in uh, some of this complex group so again for me it's great because immediately if I've got somebody in front of me that hasn't got better with traditional rehab I've got my two-point discrimination, my left-right judgment, or my neurodevelopmental tests. And immediately the, that gives me a reason why this person hasn't got better and it gives me somewhere to start. And also it allows me to validate why they haven't got better. However, if those things are normal, I'm kind of left with, okay, this is kind of back to that belief anxiety group where actually this is driven by maybe psychosocial issues and there's no doubt I've had patients with really horrendous stuff going on at home and this is their protect mechanism but for me as a clinician it's quite empowering to have those very simple tests that actually help guide my decision making. Yeah that's that's amazing how are you doing when you're assessing left right discrimination for the shoulder how are you what are you using oh, for that? So, so that's a really great question and very because um, we've always done it with a hand because when we started that was the app that was available exactly. um, and uh, yeah absolutely and and it was really interesting because then we looked at doing it with the shoulder as well but we actually found the hand was more sensitive in this group and I guess I reconcile that, that if you look at the representation of the hand on the brain it's far bigger than the shoulder and it kind of makes sense in terms of both um, accessing the brain but also rehabbing that the hand is going to have more power if you like in changing that but also the the differences were far more sensitive using the hand rather than the shoulder app um, whether it's because there's less variation in the shoulder app I don't know but we were very keen to use the app rather than the cards and things like that because it was just much easier to measure but also as a rehab tool it was much easier for patients to do at home and actually even though obviously the shoulder apps developed now we haven't felt the need to change change because we've had results using the hand. That's interesting. Yeah. I use, I use the hand app quite a bit. That's what I would use for shoulders and, and yeah. elbows. So I would just use the hand one because at the time that's what, that's what was available. And I did find that it was quite helpful. Um, and then if they had a, they didn't have a, an Apple product cause you know, the app only goes on to Apple products. Um, I would have them just grab like a lot of magazines and every time yeah. they saw like a left hand, just circle it, circle it, circle it, circle it. Now, does it give you diagnostic uh, parameters on there? No, but it is a way for them, I think, to uh, t for the rehab process. And then I guess you could use your two-point discrimination to see if it has improved. Yeah, even using so we'll that get, way. yeah, absolutely. So if they're two-point, and again, it's, 
it's a great point because I think if their two-point discrimination is abnormal, that's great because that gives us somewhere to start. So I, I believe from kind of Laura Mimosa's work that it's really important you have that visual input. So what we do is kind of draw around the shoulder blade and put some numbers or some colours or whatever um, and then take a picture on a phone and then the patient holds the phone in front of them and then we'll stimulate the points one at a time to start with so that they're, that in terms of that sensory motor congruence, can they match what they're seeing with what they're feeling? And that, that's a really useful tool if they've got someone to help them at home. But absolutely, if they don't have a phone or they, in, that they can have the app on, I absolutely agree with the magazine thing. We definitely use that. I also, in terms of this whole mirror neuron concept, encourage them to watch something that has a positive association that they like doing. So they just watch somebody doing the activity. And again, that's been shown, I think, to have a positive effect in this cortical group. Um, but I think what's so important is a very, you know, two very simple tests are very powerful in terms of understanding why somebody hasn't perhaps responded in a normal way to more routine rehabilitation. And then how would you explain that to the patient? Because I, when I explain it to the patient, I explain it to them in terms of what's happening to them from a neurological standpoint. I have had some therapists say to me, well, the patients aren't really going to understand that. So, you know, how do you simplify it? I mean, I've been able to simplify it so a 10-year-old can understand it. So what do you say to your patients um, when, it, when you're doing these the two-point discrimination, because they're probably thinking, I'm supposed to be here and you're supposed to move my arm around. Why are we doing this stuff with me looking at an app and things like that? Because you need the buy-in, right? So if you don't have the buy-in, you know, it makes it a little bit harder. Yeah, I, and, and that's such a great point. And uh, But actually what's really interesting is they haven't had these things assessed before. So because they've often done the kind of TheraBand exercises or some resistance work and it's not worked for them, the first thing they say is don't give me any of that TheraBand. So so actually the reality what? is because, I know, I, I still use it, don't worry. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big tool in my practice. But in terms of where I start with them, the reality doing something very different and I and they kind of say well why are you doing this and I will already have had a discussion with them that look I want to do some slightly different things in my assessment to try and understand why perhaps things haven't responded the way we would expect because you've obviously had some good physio because because the first thing I'm very keen not to diss anything that's happened before because that's so important that kind of not introducing any kind of anger or dissatisfaction with what's happened before but then I say I need to understand why all the good physio you've had hasn't worked so I I'll do those tests and they'll kind of say, well, why are you doing that? And why isn't it the same? Or why can't I feel it if that's the case? And I'll say, well, look, this is really cool. What we know from the scans that we've done is if these tests are scoring as they are with you, that tells us that the map in your brain of your 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 shoulder isn't quite normal. So that's like you going orienteering with a map that you've spilt something over, you know, or a map that's so old you can't see the detail anymore. Imagine how hard that would be to find your way. So we've just got to fill in the detail. Now, I wouldn't necessarily use that metaphor for everybody and and clearly the discussion I've had with them in the assessment will kind of guide the use of language but that's certainly one that I use and helps people but you know Karen I'd lie if I say I get it right all the time <laughs> there's no doubt there's times that I've said it and a patient will turn around saying oh so you're saying it's all in my head <laughs> no no I'm really not but we also have some quite cool stuff in some of the papers that has been published in relation to CRPS and some of this stuff which actually is another tool that I can give them to take away and read and I think the NOI resources are fantastic for that. Yeah, yeah, I really like that metaphor. I'm going to start using that one. I like it. <laughs> I use and sometimes I'll use the um 
the metaphor, uh, well, not a metaphor, but the visuals of like a Caravaggio painting versus like a Cubist Picasso. So Caravaggio, I say like your brain with a Caravaggio, it, it, you know, you could see every line in the skin and it's so detailed. And then since you've had all of this pain and or longstanding problems, instead of your brain looking at it like that, it's more like a Picasso. And then oh, the pa- wow, lot, yeah. oftentimes the patient will be like, you mean a cubist? I'm like, I do. And so they're like, you have oh, very educated I know, patients. <laughs> I do. They're like, you mean a cubist? And I'm like, yeah. And they'll say, oh, okay. <laughs> so for, and of, co- of course it doesn't work for everyone, same thing. But they kind of understand then that what we're working on is to shift from that Picasso cubist to a more defined Caravaggio painting. And, and I've found that a lot of people will accept that. Um, because I've I've heard a million I've heard it plenty of times. So you're saying it's all in my head. I'm like, oh damn, I did that yeah. all wrong. <laughs> That's yeah, all on I, me. <laughs> but I think what's lovely about you saying, I think the challenge, you know, I mean, there, there's a lot more written about metaphors, and you know, they can be absolutely fantastic. I had a pet. I can't remember what he said to me today, but it was something like opening the happy trap, and I thought, oh my god, I finally got there with this guy. I mean, it was just I had to contain my emotion because it was like it was his metaphor, and it was just wonderful. But uh, you know, I think we have to be mindful that what we think is a great metaphor can be a real issue for a patient and I guess the way I get away from that is I always check what they understand about what I've told them at the end of the session you know what are you going to go back and tell your partner or or your wife or whoever Um, and most of the time they tell me what I hope I'm going to hear but occasionally it's kind of quite scary what they've taken away and as you say but as long as you have an opportunity to remedy that then you know we're doing our best and, and that's the challenge of language I guess. Yeah, and I love that you, I think I have to start doing that more, what you just said, kind of asking at the end of the session, what, you know, what were your kind of takeaways, what are you going to, how would you describe what we did today, or how would you describe someone else? That's a great question, I'm going to start doing that. Um, Okay, so earlier you had mentioned you were just at this uh, conference, and it was certainly, I was kind of following from afar (laughs) on social media, and that was the British Elbow and Shoulder Society Conference. What was it? That's hashtag right. BESS 2017 or something. Was that the uh, hashtag? Yeah, it was hashtag best 2017. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. if anybody wants to find some really great tweets and content, I would suggest you go to Twitter and just search for that hashtag. But can you talk a little bit more about that conference, what that society does and what your biggest takeaways were from those couple of days? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. So, so Beth, the Bishel Bone Shoulder Society, um, was set up as a surgical society, um, but very early in its inception, it included, um, well, not just physiotherapists, allied health professionals, so occupational therapists as well. Um, and essentially, it's a society that really kind of promotes the importance of the alliance between surgeons and therapists. So, you know, it, it's been on a journey over the years, and there's no doubt that it's had a real surgical bias, but I really think we're kind of making progress that you know there's a lot more physio papers particularly this year there's been a really jump up in both the quality and the number of papers that were accepted from physios but essentially it's an opportunity for the two professions to communicate and and see each other's perspectives and learn from each other and I genuinely believe that's been to the benefit of patients so you know I feel very lucky and i and to see how it's grown when I first started I think there were five of us that went as physios and now there's um, nearly 200 I think so it's phenomenal and we've got some amazing researchers that kind of have come on board and are pushing the profession forward Um, so it's a society that's very close to my heart 
And um, what were your biggest takeaways from those couple of days? So, you know, I think one always has to be quite careful of not choosing the things that fit their own bias, but I'm going to, <laughs> certainly for the first couple. Um, there was a, on the, the first half day of the conference is um, a session especially for the physios. And we had an amazing lady called Tamar Pinkers, who's a psychologist speaking. And her talk was really fascinating because, you know, there's a lot written at the moment about the importance of realistic reassurance. Um, and she was very keen to differentiate between types of reassurance. So essentially, if you just do simple, you know, it's fine, there's nothing serious on your scan, it's all fine. If for a patient in serious pain, that can invalidate their pain experience and actually immediately drive their fear and anxiety. But what was really interesting is she made this very clear definition between effective and cognitive reassurance so she was absolutely clear that empathy and that connection initially in your assessment is paramount doing your physical examination is really important to patients but when you give that reassurance actually her research has showed that actually we don't want to have um, for it to be empathetic or effective at that stage because actually what her research has shown is that relates actually to dependency and poorer self-efficacy and poorer outcomes. The patient might initially report being very satisfied, but when you follow them up, they don't do so well. Whereas this concept of kind of cognitive reassurance, which is iterative, slow, based on learning, discussion, questions and answers, um, and is very neutral in style, actually her evidence is very clear clear that that kind of results in improved satisfaction but also enablement and so if you like patient self-efficacy and adherence is much better so that was for me was a very interesting descriptive uh, sort of um what's the word a very interesting sort of trying to differentiate differentiation that's the word <laughs> sorry <laughs> What time is it here in England? Um, it was a very interesting differentiation because I, I'm kind of always, I, I'm a big believer in communication. I do a lot of training with my staff and, and and trying to get them to just listen and be empathetic and do all the right stuff. So for me, it was very interesting that that's massively important initially in your assessment. And so the patient feels heard. But when you're delivering the message, it needs to be much more cognitive. And, and I found that really fascinating. Um the other talk that I loved was actually for a guy talking about his PhD in ACL rehab, um, which was very much about motor learning, a guy called Rob Letchford. Um, and it was a fantastic talk because I think in, in shoulder rehab at the moment, we, you know, it's fantastic that we've simplified assessment and we understand the things that really matter. However, sometimes we kind of undermine the artistry of what we do. And I think when we go back to motor learning and the fact that we, you know, the body recognizes patterns, it recognizes, um, it recognizes sensory input and that actually we need to keep our brain busy and interested and actually maybe that's why lots of different things work so I loved what he was saying and also the power of using external cues rather than making people very cognitive about a muscle making it much more about targets and and function not as in functional rehab which people get terribly excited about but actually having a functional goal as in pick up a ball or reach to a target on the wall and I know myself you know the, the evidence in terms of the the visual system synapsing directly into that sensory motor cortex your visual input is massive so I found his talk really empowering and enlightening because it kind of resonated with everything I hold dear but was in a really sound evidence base in terms of the motor learning literature oh that sounds awesome yeah 
and so I guess the last the last one was was an was an ethical dilemma, which was a, a really good discussion at one of the instructional workshops, and that was looking at the young athlete, so the under sixteen who's had a traumatic instability that wants to play rugby or a contact sport and um, so I guess American football would be the analogy for you guys um, and it was very interesting it caused a lot of debate because there was a big feeling that actually if you dislocate under 16 physiologically you're probably not up to the sport and maybe somebody needs to have a realistic conversation with you um, whereas there was obviously a cohort in the audience that felt it was worth giving that an athlete a chance but making them very aware of the risks I'm not sure we came out with the answers but it, it was certainly food for thought and there's no doubt those under 16s are a really difficult group once they have a structural lesion so it's a fabulous conference and, and a spectrum of different things and, and and some great talks just challenging what we do as therapists but for me those were probably the three key things that will make me you know what well, one made me feel good but also allowed me to do things better yeah well it sound it sounded great and again for people who want to get uh, some insight into that, just go to Twitter and follow, uh, search the hashtag BESS2017. Um, so we're about to wrap up. I have one more question for you that I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. And that question is, knowing what you know now and where you are in your career or in life, what advice would you give yourself as that brand new physio straight out of university? Oh, wow. <laughs> now I've heard this question and I hadn't rehearsed for it. That's really bad. Um, what would I tell myself? I, not to lose your enthusiasm and passion for what you do. And I think sometimes if you think differently, you have to be brave because people don't always like it. But then the thing I've learned most of all is to keep things simple. Um, and to talk to your patients, well, listen to your patients rather than talk. So I, I, I guess that's a very politician answer. The key things I would say is invest a lot of time in your communication skills early in your career because I had no communication skills training. But, you know, the evidence tells us basics and that's what we need to stick to. And we need to perhaps think a little bit more about the language we use and how we educate our patients. So, yeah, I guess I'd be telling my younger self, go and get trained in communication skills, which is slightly ironic because my father was a psychiatrist that oh, specialised really? in communication <laughs> skills. I, I needed to listen to him a whole lot more when I was younger. But, yeah, I, I, I guess communication is my passion and at the root of everything I do. But I do think my my experienced self looks back and thinks, God, you didn't half make that complicated and you really didn't need to. Yeah, and I think that's great advice for any therapist, any healthcare professional at any age is to brush up on communication skills. And and I, I know that's something that I've been working on uh, really intently for the past couple of years. And you see the difference with your patients, you know, and, and even with just people in your life. But yeah. you, certainly, you certainly see the difference with your patients. And I feel like it allows you to create that, uh, that therapeutic alliance with that patient. You know, I think that they, they know that you're there. I, yeah, and I love that. And, you know, I, I did some lecturing in France recently and a guy at the end of an evening lecture that I did gave me this piece of paper and it was about what he felt was important and what I'd said had obviously resonated. But he put this lovely thing that this is about being human. And, you know, communication underpins everything we do. And, and actually, when I look at my the difference in how I practice, I 
hard though it is after to believe after this podcast I'm so much quieter and I listen and you know what patients are just the biggest source of information and actually they give us all the clues and they give us the language to use and that's why I feel passionate and incredibly privileged to do the job that I do yes and I think on that note we will end this conversation that was a perfect way to end um where can people get in touch with you if they have burning questions for you um, so probably the easiest way is on Twitter, which is uh, when I chose my Twitter handle, I had no idea what I was doing. So I'm now stuck with <laughs> at shoulder geek one. Um, perfect. <laughs> but I am pretty geeky about shoulders. So, hey, um, that's probably by far the easiest way to perfect. get hold of me. Perfect. Yeah. And we'll have this. Uh, we'll have a link straight to that in the show notes, as well as everything we spoke about. We'll pull the links and everything from a lot of the people that you had mentioned um, in today's talk. So people can find all of that at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. So Joe, thank you so much for coming on. I know I got so much out of this and I just know the listeners will as well. So thank you so much. Thank you, Karen. It's been a real honor to be with you. Thanks. You're welcome. And everybody, thanks so much for listening. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.